Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, indeed, we, we sing hallelujah. You are great and majestic. And the weather that we saw over the weekend is yet another amazing display of your power and your greatness. As we, in our technological society, realize how powerless we are in the face of the forces of nature. And yet, Father, we realize that these are but the fringes of your ways. They are but the power of the storm is but a whisper of your infinite power. And so we are in awe of your greatness. And we give you thanks, Father, that we, your people, are able to consider this powerful storm more of an inconvenience than anything. Because you have given us homes, you've given us heat and power. And so we are not too bothered by this storm. And yet we recognize that there are many people who have been affected. And so we ask that you would be gracious to them. We recognize, Father, that even in this city, there are people who are suffering because of the effects of the storm. And so we would, in the midst of our giving thanks that we are not inconvenienced, we would pray for them and ask for your grace towards them. And we would also ask that you would give us wisdom as your people, as we recognize your faithfulness and goodness to us. We ask that you would help us to understand and recognize how we, your people, might show your compassion and grace towards the people who are suffering. Not just because of the storm, but because of all the, all the brokenness that is around us. Father, as we reflect on the reality that our great and glorious God who created this magnificent world humbled himself to walk this earth as a fully human being, subject to the harsh weather and the vagaries of life in a fallen world so that he might die to save us. We pray that you would help us to reflect that same love and compassion to the people around us, that by your Spirit you would shape us, mold us to be a people who reflect your compassion and who do not simply feel compassionate, but who would act in compassion. And we ask this so that we, your people, might truly be a light in this dark and fallen world, so that from us, through us, the light of the gospel would shine forth. And so as we come to your word today, Father, we ask that as we behold the beauty and wonder of Jesus, you would, by your Spirit, shape us into the character of Jesus for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
I'll ask you to turn with me to Daniel. Oh, sorry. Not Daniel. Luke. We already read Daniel. And Daniel chapter 7 is going to come and make an appearance, but we will read Luke chapter 5, verse 27, to chapter 6, verse 6. Now, I'm glad that Jessica introduced, I set my hope on Jesus, the hymn for a deconstructing friend, last week. Singing about our hope in Jesus in the midst of our real doubts and fears was a great way to start the year. Now, in this passage, Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 13, we find Luke giving us ample reason to set our hope on Jesus. Jesus set his love on us first, and so the Son of God entered this messed up world to make all things new and create a community of transformed followers. I, I tend to take large swaths of text, so I try to sum it up, and that's the summary of this whole message. The Son of God entered this messed up world to make all things new and create a community of transformed followers. And that is best expressed in chapter, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, up to chapter 6, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, but so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not reach the, match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skin will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is better, or is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now jump back to, with me to chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus objected to the people of Capernaum, I will not stay 
I have been sent to preach the kingdom of God to the other villages. And so chapter 5 finds him continuing his preaching ministry. But this time, he is not in a synagogue. This time, he is by the lake of Gennesaret, or in other um, gospels, the, lake of, um, the Sea of Galilee. And he's being hemmed in by the crowds. And he sees a couple of fishing boats owned by Simon, the same guy whose mother-in-law he healed. And so he goes to Simon in verse 3 and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And uh, it became a natural amphitheater. And the, the, the water served as uh, a natural sounding board. And after Jesus had finished speaking, verse 4, he told Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now put yourself in Peter's sandals for a minute. First of all, fishing during the day is a waste of time because the fish could see the net. And they're smart enough to avoid it. And yet, this carpenter dares to promise a professional fisherman a catch after this same professional fisherman had spent the whole night catching, trying, and unsuccessfully fishing. But in the same way that Mary submitted to the angel's word, even if she didn't fully understand, Peter took Jesus at his word. Look at verse 5. He says to Jesus, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let the nets down. And what do you think happens next? Well, he's not disappointed. Luke tells us in verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. Now Peter isn't simply astonished. He recognizes the presence of God in the person of Jesus. And his response is very similar to Isaiah's response to his vision of God seated on his throne in the temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, we are told in verse 8, Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What does that, what does fish have to do with my sin? Well, the catch of fish made Peter recognize Jesus' greatness. He senses Jesus' divine holiness. And Peter confesses that he is not worthy. In fact, Peter is the first person in Luke to address Jesus as Lord, acknowledging Jesus' sovereign authority. And Jesus responds, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Wonderfully, Jesus does not turn Peter away, but instead draws him closer to him. We have the suggestion here that Peter's sins are forgiven in the same way that Isaiah 6 has Isaiah being forgiven and being sent out. And the same thing is happening here. 
The word catching has the idea of catching people alive. An allusion to Jeremiah 16, in which Judah will be punished and sent into exile because of its sin and iniquity. But the Lord promises to send fishers and hunters who will rescue those who are exiled. And so Peter, James, and John leave their prosperous fishing business behind to follow Jesus, submitting to his authority. And by the way, if you look at the opening slide, the title slide, it features a boat, right? That boat is meant to capture this moment, or probably, you might say, two weeks after this moment, when Peter, James, and John leave everything to follow Jesus, submitting to his authority. Jesus is now gathering a people, a set of followers for his new community, exercising his authority. And Luke moves on to another story because he wants to emphasize how Jesus exercises his authority with compassion. This time it's a leper coming to Jesus. Now this man's leprosy isn't Tansen's disease necessarily. It's one of many skin diseases that would render a man, a person, ceremonially unclean. And so this person was forced to live in isolation, marginalized by the community. He had heard about Jesus, and he believed that Jesus had the ability and authority to heal him. The only issue in his mind was, is Jesus willing to do this? Now, remember, this man is marginalized. He's always shunned and avoided. Nevertheless, he falls on his face before Jesus. He is taking a risk, approaching Jesus, falling on his face to beg, if you will, you can make me clean. And while he's on his face before Jesus, he feels a hand on his shoulder, perhaps, touching him. And he hears Jesus telling him, I will be clean. Now understand, Jesus could have healed this man at a distance. But Jesus nonetheless touched him physically so that this man who had been an outcast for who knows how long would experience the compassion and love of Jesus. See, leprosy could not defile Jesus. On the contrary, his holiness would be contagious. And he wasn't simply providing physical healing to this man in cleansing him. He was implicitly forgiving his sins. But more than that, he was also restoring this man to community. That's why Jesus, in verse 14, tells him, keep your healing quiet for now. And have your healing validated by a priest so that the man would be restored to the community and no longer be an outcast. Now, in verse 15 and 16, we are told that despite Jesus' efforts to stay under the radar, word still got around. And Luke makes a note that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray as his fame grew. And Daryl Box suggests that Jesus does that because he wants to make it, uh, Luke makes it clear that before Jesus got into trouble, he was spending time with God. Jesus wasn't freelancing. He was acting in obedience to the Father. And the reason for that becomes very clear in verse 17. See, it seems that Jesus' fame 
had gotten to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And so they came, verse 17, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And they want to check Jesus out. Who is this guy? And Luke tells us that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Imagine the scene. <laughs> Jesus is teaching the crowd. It's standing room only. And while he's teaching, all of a sudden, dirt starts falling. And a bed or a stretcher starts going down. That was surprising, right? And bless their heart, they were so convinced that Jesus could heal their paralyzed friend, they would not let anything keep them from coming to Jesus, even if it meant destruction of property. But there's a bigger surprise here. See, when, when this man finally gets before Jesus, Jesus doesn't heal him. Jesus says, man, verse 20, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus goes beyond this man's immediate physical need to every person's ultimate need. To be reconciled to God. But that gets Jesus into trouble. And that's deliberate. The scribes and Pharisees begin to question, saying, verse 21, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, mind you, they are correct when they say that only God could forgive. And they rightly recognize that Jesus is claiming a divine prerogative for himself. And you know that Jesus meant to do this. And so he, questions, he challenges them. Why do you question in your hearts? All right, here's the deal. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And verse 25 tells us that the man immediately got up, picked up his bed, and went home glorifying God, demonstrating to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the people there that Jesus has both authority to heal and to forgive sins. And that is no surprise. That should be no surprise to us because Luke had already indicated in verse 17 that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, James Edwards points out that the unusual phrase, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal, should not be understood to imply that sometimes such power was not with Jesus. The only other occurrence in Scripture of the power of the Lord is in Exodus 12.41, where it describes God's summary power of releasing Israel from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. Don't miss this. The power of the Lord equates Jesus' healing ministry with the authority and might of God, signaling 
that in Jesus a new exodus is at hand. And Luke now shows us that the grace that Jesus shows that is inherent in the new covenant, in the new exodus, is being demonstrated to demonstrated indiscriminately. Because the first person to be called after this is Levi, the tax collector. Verse 27. Now, we don't like paying taxes, right? Right? None of us ever in April say, yay, I have to pay my taxes. But tax collectors in Jewish society were especially loathed because they often took advantage of their position to enrich themselves at the expense of the people. And worse, in collecting taxes for Rome, they were being disloyal to Israel and therefore to God. Nonetheless, Jesus calls him. And just like Peter, James, and John, notice in verse 28, leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. Now, in some ways, Levi's action is far greater than Peter, James, and John. Because David Garland points out, while Levi may not have left the most lucrative or worthwhile position, leaving everything means walking away from any loyalties that would compete with loyalty to Christ. In so doing, he does more than what the fishermen disciples did. They could always go back to fishing. In fact, you will find in John, Peter goes back to fishing, right? In chapter 21. After abandoning his post, Levi is unlikely to be welcomed back with open arms. He literally left everything. And more than that, Levi is so delighted with Jesus, he actually holds a great feast in his home so that he could introduce his colleagues and friends to Jesus. And once again, Jesus raises the hackles of the scribes and Pharisees. Why is that? Well, Thomas Schreiner explains, eating with others signifies social acceptance. And the Pharisees were careful not to eat with those considered to be sinners. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners powerfully communicates that love and grace are being extended to those rejected by the religious establishment. When Jesus eats with others, he communicates that justification is by faith alone, that forgiveness is available to all. And we see the perfect approach in Jesus Christ. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He loves them and extends grace to them. But at the same time, he calls them to repentance. And as churches and believers, we need both grace and truth, love and justice, mercy and righteousness. And that's why when the scribes and Pharisees criticize Jesus, he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, guys, I'm just doing what I came to do. I'm simply fulfilling my God-given mission to bring salvation. But the scribes and Pharisees object. Well, Jesus, if you're calling sinners to repentance, why are they eating and drinking? That doesn't look like repentance. 
They tell Jesus, well, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Implicitly, they're saying, well, that's repentance, isn't it? Yours eat and drink. But here, Jesus actually raises the stakes. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, that's a very provocative statement. First of all, Jesus is applying to himself the imagery of God as a bridegroom. That's from Isaiah 54, 5 to 8. He is the bridegroom. He is with them. That's why they're, fast, they're feasting, not fasting. But in doing that, he is asserting equality with God. And second, he is also implying that he has already inaugurated the gate kingdom feast that God promised in Isaiah 25, verse 6 to verse 9. That feast of good things that we read about in our call to worship, where death would be no more and God will wipe away tears from his people's eyes. Jesus is saying, it's now. Because I am here. As Tim Chester recognizes, in the ministry of Jesus, meals were enacted grace, community, and mission. So the meals of Jesus represent something bigger. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. But they give that reality substance. Jesus' meals aren't just symbols. They're also application. And meals are more than food. They're social occasions. They represent friendship, community, and welcome. And that's why we're having our newcomers lunch. And I hope you take advantage of that. To, this is our way of enacting grace and following the example of Jesus. See, Jesus isn't simply coming to bring salvation, and then he'll leave things the way they are. Jesus is bringing something radically new and different. And that's why the Pharisees and scribes are so, so frustrated and annoyed. They want to keep things the way they are. Jesus is bringing something just out of this world. And that's the point of the parable of the new garments and the new wineskins. Jesus is bringing... <sighs> the hopes and dreams that God had promised. He's bringing a joyful celebration that could not be contained in the spiritual practices of the Pharisees or even of John the Baptist's followers. He's bringing a new way that isn't about what you do. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for us. And we enter into relationship with this glorious God through faith in Jesus. This new way has Jesus of Nazareth as the focal point. And he has come to make all things new and create a new community. That's why jumping to chapter 6, verse 12 to 16, he names 12 of his disciples apostles. It's not that 12 is the ideal small group size. He is appointing leaders who would serve as the nucleus of the restored Israel. It is a people defined by faith in Jesus, not by ethnicity. 
and certainly not by their perceived notion of righteousness. And what Jesus is saying in the parable is that you cannot cling to the old ways of doing things. Something new has come in the person of Jesus. One must embrace Jesus and the new covenant that he brings about. Don't tell yourself the old is good. It might be good, but something better has come. And that's why Luke records two Sabbath controversies. He is showing that Jesus brings something new, radically new and amazing. In the first controversy, he shows that Jesus' authority transcends the law. See, the Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples for plucking and eating heads of grain, which they consider Sabbath-breaking because you're harvesting. Now, Jesus could have addressed it several different ways. But instead of arguing about the definition of work, Jesus actually points to the precedent that David had set. When he and his men ate the bread of the presence, which only priests could eat, in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4. And the reasoning is this. If David, being God's anointed king, could disregard the provisions of the law, then Jesus, being greater than David, could do the same. And that's why he calls himself the Son of Man in chapter 6, verse 6. When he says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is drawing us back to Daniel 7, verse 14. And the scribes and Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus would have caught it. This is the Son of Man, whom the Ancient of Days, God Himself, gives divine authority and power. In calling Himself the Son of Man, He says, listen, that guy that you were looking for in Daniel 7, 14, He's right here. He is Lord over the Sabbath. Another way of saying it is that he has the authority to define how Sabbath is to be kept. Now, the interesting thing, moving from verse 6 onwards, is that Jesus doesn't discard the Sabbath. Rather, he fulfills the intent of the Sabbath. According to Luke, in chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And Jesus knew that the scribes and Pharisees were there and they were watching him because they wanted to accuse him of Sabbath breaking. In other words, this man is a trap. And so Jesus springs the trap. He calls the man forward and he challenges them in verse 9. So, people, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? In asking the question, Jesus is asserting God's intent for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath law was to free humankind up to rest and enjoy God, not to shackle them from serving others or prevent basic needs from being met. Jesus is arguing that the law seeks to encourage righteousness and healthy involvement with people, not the creation of a host of rules. 
And so without waiting for these scribes and Pharisees to answer, he answers the question himself. He tells the man to stretch out his hand. Now, technically, because Jesus only spoke, he didn't do any work. But that is not the point of this. What is happening here is that Jesus is fulfilling the intent of Sabbath by doing good to a man with a withered hand. He fulfills the intent of Sabbath by ex exercising care and compassion to a man in need of healing. And for that, look at verse 11. The scribes and Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Jesus asks the question, what is the Sabbath for? Is it to do good or to destroy? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? These sticklers for the law started discussing what we might do to Jesus. And we know that eventually... This results in Jesus being executed on the cross. But here's the wonderful paradox of the gospel. What those scribes and Pharisees did to Jesus eventually was the very means by which he makes all things new. Isn't that great? His death satisfies God's justice and secures our forgiveness. And His resurrection brings in the new creation. The reason why Jesus could say to that paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, was that He was planning to go to the cross. And in His resurrection, He brings in the new creation. His redemptive act brings in the new covenant promise of new hearts indwelt by His Spirit. And when He returns, that feast of good wine and rich food is going to come to pass in its fullness. Because He will truly make all things new. We will live in a world that is not stained by sin because it will have been renewed. That's our hope. And that's why we've set our hope on Jesus. Because by His death and resurrection, He makes all things new. And as His people, you and I, we are privileged to be fishers of men, proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom along with Jesus. So understand this. Crestwick is an outpost of the kingdom of God. We don't measure our worth by our influence or by our size or by our budget. We measure our faithfulness by whether or not we showcase the beauty of the new creation. By whether or not, as disciples, we reflect the care, compassion, and love of Jesus as we proclaim the truth in love. 
So here's a challenge for you and me. As people who rejoice in the wonder of salvation, as people who rejoice in Jesus Christ, who say, all my boast is in Jesus, and rightly so, I hope that we would, by the grace of God, strive to be that new kind of community that reflects the grace, the love, the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll be talking about the Sermon on the Plain, Luke chapter 6, verse 17 onwards. That's where Jesus begins to unpack what this new kind of community looks like. But for now, as the people of God who have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my prayer for us is that we would embody the hope of the kingdom of God as we relate to one another, as we conduct ourselves day by day. My prayer is that people would see us and say, there's something weird and different and refreshingly new about this person. And I hope that it would be because we are filled with that new wine of the Spirit that is transforming us and making us look like Jesus so that we may embody the hope of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that though we live in the midst of a dark and sinful world, you have given us a hope that is better than any hope that could be proclaimed. First of all, because it is real. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not a wish. It is a hope that is guaranteed because it is already in existence, though not yet consummated. It is guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus because he has addressed the core issue that makes this world such a mess. And that is the reality of our sin. And we thank you that in his resurrection, he has begun to make all things new and that this new creation is already in existence. And amazingly, we, your people, are part of that new creation. And strange though it may be, we are new creation. We have the life of the Spirit in us. We are in communion with you. And though our lives remind us day by day that we are still in a fallen world and we, we, we cry out, Maranatha, oh Lord, come, make all things new. We thank you that this hope that you've given us gives us strength and motivates us fulfill the responsibilities that you've given us, the callings that you've given us, to the best of the ability that you give us, so that we may foreshadow to the people around us that new kingdom that has come and is coming, 
that we may show people the beauty, the flourishing, the shalom of the kingdom in the way we relate to them, in the way we relate to one another, in the way we respond to crises and challenges. And Lord, we, we recognize we're a way, a long way from being a true reflection. All too often, the, the reflection we give is a distorted reflection. But we thank you that your spirit is, even now, at work in us, convicting us of our sin, and over and over showing us that we are forgiven and showing us the beauty of Christ so that we may rise from our sin and begin afresh to reflect that forgiveness to the people around us. Oh Lord, we pray, continue to work in us so that as a people, individually and corporately, we might show the city of Guelph the beauty of what you have done and foreshadow what you are accomplishing so that this city might see the glory and beauty of Jesus in and through us. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen.